the reality is is that it caused so much confusion. The uh, users, i.e., the food processors, had to get interpretation. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutrition program innovation. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, this uh, new episode of the Fit Science Podcast Show. Uh, my name is uh, Wilmer Pacheco. I am an associate professor in, uh, in Auburn University. And uh, today I have the, the pleasure to talk with uh, Dr. Keith Warriner. How are you, Keith? Oh, thanks, Wilmer. Yes, it's good to be back. Um, I remember the last pod- podcast we had, so hopefully we can uh, add to that. Yeah, and I, I, I had the opportunity to listen to that podcast, and uh, it was uh, a lot of really good information. But uh, for the, the people that see you know see you in this podcast um, the first time, uh, could you share a little bit about yourself? Oh, for sure. Like I said, I don't know how far you want me to go back, but I'll go back <laughs> to the beginning. So uh, essentially, I was from originally from the UK, as you can <laughs> tell by the accent. And when I was at so what, what they call it high school here, they don't call it comprehensive over in UK, I wanted to be a chef. I actually went to chef training school and I completed the two years there, went to work in industry. And then I found out that, uh, yeah, the catering industry is pretty tough and hard. <laughs> Good experience, but pretty uh, uh, tough, especially in terms of hours and managing. And the thing about it, I always enjoyed the theory of food rather than the actual physical cooking. Even that was noted. Anyway, to the point is that after a few years in industry, I decided to go back to education. I got a degree from the University of Nottingham, um, and that's Robin Hood country. Uh, Then I went to do a PhD in microbial physiology at uh, Aberystwyth University in Wales. Then I went to University of Manchester to actually work on diagnostics, clinical diagnostics, biosensors. And after five, I think it was five years there, I went back to the University of Nottingham to become a research fellow. And there was a food microbiologist again after leaving it so long. And I came over to uh, Guelph, which is in Canada, near Toronto, uh, back in 2002. And since then, we've kind of had a research front on food safety, you know, looking at innovations, risk assessment, emerging pathogens. And in addition to the research, as all academics need to do, most of them do, mm-hmm. is we do teaching. And so we've been a very heavy into the teaching and training, outreach with industry, you know, to troubleshoot or give opinions. And so, yes, it's, uh, so it's a very broad background. And I think, uh, you know, going back to my youth, you think, well, why didn't you just choose food science at the start? Well, you know, we get there in the end, don't we, <laughs> which is the main thing. 
Devonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Well, I, I understand you. You just make me remember. Uh, you just remind me about like a, a person that I met in the in a plane the other day, and uh, I think uh, he was not a chef, but uh, he had a restaurant, and uh, he told me. I don't, I didn't really like it because you had to work when everybody's enjoying, you know, and uh, that might be, you know, um, as a chef might be similar, but there is a lot of people that enjoy, you know, uh, doing it. And since you have been like in so many different places, um, do you see any difference about like, you know, like these different places or different countries approach uh, food safety? Yeah, certainly, you know, uh, we go across the world as academics, which is one of the benefits. Um, and you see different uh, behaviours in some way, but very similar behaviours in others. So you go to the UK, for example, and it's different because obviously it's in different timelines. They're kind of saying, well, you don't really need HACCP. We've done this all the years. We've got small businesses. We don't need too much. So they're a, a tough nut to crack. Then you go to China, very innovative, and but again, they've got these traditions. And what I've noticed in there, when you talk about regulations and HACCP, say, why do we need this kind of thing? You know, we've done very well, uh, we've done ourselves. When I've been to uh, South America, very high on food safety, very high on uh, wanting to do the right thing and how to comply with regulations. And then in the, when I go to the U.S., um, obviously, they are heavily regulated, as you probably know, because you're there. Um, they've got a different kind of mindset in terms of, yeah, they're conscious of food safety, but they're also conscious of the bottom line. Very much like here in Canada is that they give the outward appearance of food safety, but at the end of the day, it's, uh, well, you know, how can we make it profitable? So, yeah, you do see different attitudes, not only in different countries, but in different size of operations. And I think what really surprises me, though, um, especially in North America, we put a lot of emphasis on training. And it's amazing how much training is done, but also amazing how very little training is put into practice. And so you see these different things, but mm -hmm. at the end of the day, everyone's got different challenges, uh, how to do things. But yeah, it's quite interesting the contrast you see you know, as you go through your travels. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I, I do imagine that, you know, like in some places or even, you know, particular companies, they've, uh, some of them give a lot of, um, um, they focus a lot in uh, post-harvest food safety or there's my uh, focus on uh, pre-harvest pre food safety or both? Or neither, yeah. which is more worrying. But yeah. you're right. Yeah, especially yeah. my uh, sort of forte is the fresh produce business. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the amount of emphasis, they kind of say, control everything at pre-harvest, post-harvest, we should be good. But, you know, that recipe has never worked and it never will work, yeah. to be honest. But you're right, it's got different focuses. Um, and it only takes an outbreak, though, to really refocus things. Mm -hmm. Like at the moment, we've got a big salmonella recall going on with oats. 
And I think the Oak people say, wow, this is really uh, hitters, even though they've had previous issues, but it does. You know, you've got to be ahead of the game rather than reacting to it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, um, I saw, like, the, the podcast that uh, that you did with uh, Dr. Adam Farenholz, and then uh, you you spoke towards the end about, like, um, food safety uh, toolkit that you have been uh, developing or, you know, collaborating could you share a little bit more about, like, um, you know, what are the objectives and um, how this um, food safety toolkit could help to reduce uh, foodborne illnesses and uh, improve uh, food safety? Yeah, this was um, a fairly big project. So, mm-hmm. essentially, what uh, happened is that the FAO, uh, Food Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, approached us. I would say more than two years ago now, it all goes into a blur. And the thing about the FAO is that they're kind of overseers of agriculture, really focusing on food security. And then you've got WHO, the World Health Organization, focusing on food safety or safety in general, food safety being one. And you've got the World Trade Organization who wants to get the freedom of trade. So really what, uh, going right back to the history uh, of Codex, uh, which Elementus is the key thing, is that uh, back in even 1920s, people were talking about this need for standards because we're trading more. You know, we're trading within the nation, across borders, and internationally. So everyone has to have a rule book to play by the same rules. So they kind of assurance that it's going to be safe. Anyway, to the point is that back in the 30s, you know, sort of uh, cooperation between nations wasn't really high on the agenda for the simple reason they were heading for war, which obviously happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, But after the World War II, essentially then uh, FAO was established along with WHO. And then in 1960s, they said, we have to get food security and food safety in place. And this is where Codex, so Codex is this sort of part of the United Nations, a collaboration between the FAO, WHO, and the World Trade Organization. And they came together, as nations do, and said, right, let's get these standards written. So you could imagine, can't you, that uh, you've got 130 experts from different countries mm-hmm. trying to agree on something a consensus and it took a long time but all those decisions are made on science-based uh, facts you know to have it's not just an opinion it's actually science-based anyway i'm getting to the point don't worry about the mm-hmm. box mm-hmm. um so basically what happened um they all got together and they made this document which some people would have heard of a lot of people haven't and it's called the Codex General uh, Guide to Hygienic Practice. And you would have to really go searching for it. But that uh, Guide for Hygienic Practice is basically the foundation for a lot of regulations and everything out there. So it's a global standard. It's not law because Codex doesn't make laws. Codex produces these standards. And countries take it to make regulations. FISMA, um, up here, Safe Food for Canadians Act, Europeans take it to do their food safety policy. So the thing was then is that we have this general hygienic uh, or this good guide to hygienic practice, which includes good hygienic practice GMPs. And the problem was it's open to interpretation. It was meant to be. And these are descriptive. You know, basically, as long as the end result safe food, yeah, you could do what you like. And countries mm-hmm. took 
these get general hygiene practice and made regulations. Now, the regulations uh, obviously get a bit complicated because once you've implemented the regulation, you need inspectors to actually go there and inspect, say, yeah, you're complying. And the problem is, is that so without a, a standard or a rule book, you know, inspectors don't know what they're doing at the best of times. Well, this is even worse. So what was happening is that people were get, you know, introducing HACCP, more documentation, more regulation. And it came to a point where it became so complex. And, you know, when you got to have a consultant, you, know, you pay charge about 80 to $100 an hour just to interpret the regulations, you're in a kind of bad place. So anyway, mm-hmm. to the point is that I think what's happened is those small processors have got left behind because they said, we'll never get to things like the Global Food Safety Initiative. We won't be able to implement that kind of food safety management system is that they get left behind. And, you know, if you don't understand something, you're more likely to say, well, let's not bother. Let's forget about it. It's a bit like when we go to our exercise gyms, isn't it, in the new year. We have all these intentions to say, yeah, we're going to run a marathon this year. But when you can't even run a 1,000 meters, you say, well, let's give up. So anyway, I'm getting to the point, don't worry. So to the point is that a lot of these small producers, SMEs and that, uh, you know, basically don't even aspire to becoming uh, this sort of uh, phys- uh, you know, GFSI certified scheme. So the, the thing what with the FAO, is, and it's not just developing countries, all countries, you know, we all have challenges. Some have more challenges than others. They embarked on this sort of uh, way of saying, okay, we've got all this information. We've got this hygienic guide. We've made all these publications. So world experts have got together and they make documentations, which I'm sure some pe- most people have heard of. Uh, the last one was to do with poultry meat and how to make it safe mm-hmm. and things like that. But how do you communicate that to the food industry? Uh, and because of the FAO and uh, Codex and who are kind of – not uh, law, not regulatory, that can't be, don't make laws. They can't tell countries what to do. They can actually put suggestions out there. So what their sort of initiatives was at the start was saying, all right, so let's just print lots of documents and put them on the website and people will come. They didn't. So they said, all right, then, why don't we train the trainer then? Why don't we uh, train people how to train others and it'll be all good. They'll be spreading the word. Uh, the problem is, is that, uh, one, you're depending on good trainers, which are fair and far between, and it gets open to interpretation. And if you're not familiar with the Codex um, GHP guide, you can they'll take bits of it they want, but it doesn't give you overall impression. And I think the problem with any regulation is you don't know what you know you know what you know and they, but you don't know what you don't know kind of thing mm-hmm. and this is half the issue with complexity is that they'll go to auditors they'll go to what we call uh, competent authorities i.e. regulators and they'll ask them for advice and they'll turn around and say look we're not here to give advice we're here to enforce laws and that and so basically what said the FAO, and this is the point, where the FAO mm-hmm. came in is they say, we want someone to look at our material. You know, we've got all these doc, trainer, trainer documents. And we went through it and they were soon apparent saying, I can see what the problem is here. The problem is you're not directly connecting 
with the actual user, the food business owner, the business owner of the feed mill owner, the people on the ground. And so they, they were asking, saying, well, what should we do then? And this is where we came up with this toolbox. Well, not as just as, but mm-hmm. obviously people in the FAO as well. They we came up with this idea saying, let's make a food safety toolbox. Let's make use of technology. The technology is the internet. You know, even most countries now have internet and everyone's got a phone uh, mm-hmm. and things like that. So let's make it web-based. So we had a choice. You know, you could say, oh, yeah, just pile all the material into that and give people an idea saying, well, yeah, this document's going to be to do with feed mills. This document's going to be with poultry and things like this. But the problem was is that if you overload people with information, a bit like the gym example, they'll just Mm -hmm. give up. They'll read a sentence. Like if you actually go and read the hygienic practice manual, you'll see it – yeah, some text is very long, but it's the hidden words within the text. And you think, oh, well, I missed that sentence. But that sentence took about 138 experts from 600 mm-hmm. countries. They spent probably all afternoon just debating what that sentence should mm-hmm. be. Anyway, to the point then. So what we thought about is let's make it a toolbox and let's make use of teaching techniques that are seldom used in food safety, um, you know, that of mapping chunking and uh, what we call um, you know directed learning in terms of asked by learning rather than learning by facts uh, but we'll talk about that a bit later mm-hmm. so what the objective can you be <laughs> original question mm-hmm. the objective of the research what of or uh, project was to give a user friendly platform where people could self-direct them. Not self, it's not directed learning, but they can be gently introduced into the GHP. They could be gently introduced to what needs to be done and then how to do it in a stepwise fashion. So that was the objective of it. It took, um, yeah, about a year to... I call it perfect. If you want. Well, mm-hmm. perfection is a long road. I don't think it's perfected yet, but certainly it's out there and it's available. And it was launched on the Food Safety Day, which I think was on the 7th of July. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, it's always work in progress. But that was our objective, to give the actual users of uh, these sort of guides at least background information. Uh, obviously, it doesn't substitute regulation, but it certainly demystifies things like HACCP and things like that. So um, ba- ba- basically, what what you were trying to do was like getting something that was uh, broad and maybe like a little bit confusing, uh, more like uh, directed to to the different uh, businesses, maybe or kind the different. Cop- <laughs> I, I was gonna ask you uh, in that regard. Um, do you have like any or can inspectors do these trainings too? Because sometimes, you know, like uh, I think inspectors should also uh, get trained and uh, we try to do that um, here in, in, um, in Auburn a few years ago, we, we developed with, with a, well, I was part, I collaborated with a, with another professor to develop something that we call the virtual feed milling where, you know, you can go and see a pellet mill. And then if you click, you can see how the pellet mill is working inside or how the hammer mill, how the mixer. Because sometimes um, when the inspector goes to a mill, they need to have like an idea of the process. That way they just don't go with with a list of questions for you or 
Well, I, I think it helps the inspectors when they have like a, a good understanding of, of, of what you are doing in the facility. So I don't know like if this can also be applied to inspectors. Oh, no, you're exactly right. <laughs> you know, uh, the problem with our food regulatory system is that it got, as we talked about, it gets so complex. You know, people putting regulations say, oh, we go beyond the regulation. We have to have something else. And GFSI threw their thing in 2001 saying, oh, we're going to have a uh, standardized way of introducing HACCP. And the reality is, is that it gave so much confusion. The uh, users, i.e. the food processors, had to get interpretation and where do you go for interpretation? Well, you go to the people who wrote it. And the problem is, over the last 30 years, is that industry have become much more dependent on the regulators for information. And as you rightly said, the work, well, I've got to be careful here. The, uh, the only people who know this process inside out are the people who actually do it, the processors. And you get the regulators coming in who probably hasn't seen a food mill, um, who hasn't done this. But then they're looked at saying, you're my fountain of knowledge. You've got to tell me how to get to the regulations. And this was the problem is that regulators turn around and say, look, we're not experts at this. We come with our clipboard with standards on, and that's all we can do. But it's come to the point where when I've talked to people from industry, yeah, maybe not the feed mill industry, but other Mm -hmm. industries, they say, well, what do regulators think about this? Like, what do they know? And you'll hear it a lot in foodborne illness outbreaks is that uh, we followed up to the regulation. You know, we had a big outbreak here of Listeria in 2008 in Canada through with Maple Leaf Foods. They managed Mm -hmm. to, uh, well, 24 people died, thousands affected. And their defense was we went up to regulation. And so the problem with regulators is that they've put themselves in this impossible position mm-hmm. of uh, they can't be educators, but there again, yeah, they'll shut you down if you don't follow regulation. So I don't think this, well, to get to your question again, the food safety toolbox on purpose is not a course. Mm-hmm. You don't get a fancy certificate uh, because the reality is I'm, this is my belief rather than anything else. I think we went the wrong way with uh, training and certificates because it's a bit like when we do our degree. You know, we do our degree and our conscious is saying, beat the GPA, you know, beat first class honours. And you'll do anything to get that GPA. Um, Maybe some undermining stuff, I don't know. But uh, the point is, is once you've got your certificate, be it a degree, even a PhD, Oh, that's it, isn't it? Let's sit sit back. And I think a lot of the issues that have been um, with the food industry is a focus a lot on training. But the trouble is they'll train. They'll get a certificate saying, look, I'm a uh, PCQA. I'm a preventive control qualified individual. But then you go to reality. Say, what, what's reality here? <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know how to apply that knowledge. And so for sure, it's not what the toolbox is and people can go and look at it themselves. It's like a reference. You know, it's literally a bit like we talked about in saying people don't know what they don't know. But by going to the actual source document, this is going to literally the originals. You can say, oh, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to know. Because as I mentioned most regulations, be it in Europe, South America, North America, are based on this. The food code is based on these general hygienic practice. And what people have done in before is try to put prescriptive um, guidelines in 
to do with it. So prescriptive guidelines, just for those who don't know, mm-hmm. is saying this is how you do things. And that's half the issue is that, yeah, you could give people specific examples saying in a feed mill, you do quality checks on the material coming in. Well, you know, I'm pretty sure you get a lot of different raw materials mm-hmm. for different criteria. So what this uh, toolbox does is give you the confidence, if you like, and the background knowledge to put it into context, your context, rather than mm-hmm. me giving an example. There's very mm-hmm. few examples given here. And so to answer your question about inspectors, inspectors can come in and actually look at it and get a background information. Obviously, you can't substitute that for experience. I always say the best inspectors are the ones who's been actually in the business mm-hmm. and you know people say well you know you're really promoting from within you're putting the fox in charge of the chicken house but it doesn't work like that you know i think the best inspectors are the ones that have been in the industry have learned from it and it's interesting when they were introducing hassett in 1996 they actually took inspectors and told them to work for a year in industry before they actually mm-hmm. did anything and, and that really gives benefits so what the toolbox will do for inspectors is give them a firm idea of what's required because, as I said, it's like Chinese whispers. The FISMA regulations, state-of-the-art, modernized, but they've lost the basics. They've actually got so far away that they don't know what the basics are. So if you're doing the basics, you're doing all right. So the only thing on top of that is good. Mm-hmm. And it can be used by trainers because, as you know, when we're developing courses, uh, we say, well, how broad should we do it? What should we include in it? So you can literally go to this toolbox, which is like Codex uh, not certified, but yeah, codec is a lot of experts have put a lot of effort into it. And you can say, oh, yes, this is what I need to teach the students and things like this. Mm-hmm. And obviously, food business owners use it to say, well, how do I comply with regulations? What's the basics I need to do? And they know what the boundaries are, which is good. And I, uh, some, something that I, 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 I see, you know, good potential on what you're describing is when you have new employees, right? I mean, uh, the companies could use these tools for new employees because there is always a lot of turnover and you were discussing, you know, like sometimes, well, you know, a company, a feed mill could have a PCQI, but then um, then the PCQI just found another job and then the PCQI leaves. Now we need another PCQI to take place. Um, so due to like the turnover that, you know, occurs these days, um, seems like this will be a good tool to to train uh, new employees. Um, it seems like. Yeah, yes and no to that question. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, as we talked about, I think these training courses, there could be a week long, there could mm-hmm. be a month long, there could be one day every week, I don't know. But the trouble is, is that when you get a course like that, a certificate at the end, you know, they say, well, that's it. I don't need to do it. And what the industry is missing is this continual improvement. Mm-hmm. And so for sure, you know, anybody from any sort of background can go into the toolbox and learn it. But at the end of the day, it's not a course. It's not uh, describing what people should do. It's, it really, it kind of describes what they should be thinking about doing. Mm-hmm. And this continuous improvement, I think, is important. You know, I think these, you know, people say incentives, you know, pay them more if they do this course and that, promote them more. I think that's half the issue because people see it as a means to an end. But certainly you could go into that. The trainer could do it at least. 
and you know basically be able to devise material you know to suit their context mm-hmm. be it in a feed bill be it in a uh, lettuce factory or something like that um but what we hope to do is that we've made it in like different levels. So if you were just Joe Public, you know, you had no uh, job in the food industry, but you were interested in saying, well, how do these food industries get regulated and standards? You could just go in for a casual thing and look at the different aspects of it. Now, whether you'll find it interesting, hopefully you will, because it's always good to learn. So as a tr- you're right, what you say, though, is that there's so much staff turnover that you need people who are trained at least to be receiving information i think that's what we aim for mm-hmm. you know be receptive to information understand why it's important how it's done yeah and and to my to my understanding um you know like this uh codex uh of a good hygienic practice guides is subdivided in uh, two 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 areas or two chapters right uh the good manufacturing practice and then the HACCP. Um, do you, can you just tell us about like how will this compare with uh, the animal food role of, of FISMA, for example? Because there we also have like you know the good manufacturing practices, and then we got the hazard analysis, uh, risk uh, preventive controls. Yeah, so basically this is the foundation. You know, it's a bit like uh, looking at the interpretation of what uh, those FISMA people, the FDA, came up with. So it's purposely divided into two, the prerequisite programs <laughs> and obviously HACCP. Uh, you know, Codex endorsed HACCP back in ninety. No, I think it was 86, actually. So that really gave it a big boost. Anyway, to the point is that um, to describe the general hygienic practice, it is nine sections. And what these nine sections cover is a very broad thing. So uh, basically, it's got an introduction to uh, hazards. You know, what is a hazard? Mm-hmm. Uh, not just by biological, you know, chemical and things like that. And then it's got the farm, the section two, which is prime production. So it had one section to cover all farming, you know, regardless animals, crops, mm-hmm. you name it. But then it's interesting. It goes into this phase where, you know, if you were starting out to develop a business, what's the sort of fundamentals of hygienic design maintenance pest control storage all these Mm -hmm. things and then other sections start talking about how do you run this place and they've got one whole section on good hygienic practice you know about washing hands Mm -hmm. and washrooms and what that then leads on to so gmps uh, good manufacturing practice because even if you go to people today and say i'll explain gmp to me they say it's hand washing, isn't it? It's just good practice. Well, what what's good practice? Mm-hmm. And what this um, good hygiene practice does is actually tell you what GMPs are, because it's even mm-hmm. amazes me today. You know, when I go to companies and say, tell me about what GMPs are, they look at me blankly, say, well, it's just good practice anyway. But mm-hmm. it's the point. So the thing that people miss about GMPs is that HACCP was introduced to manage the GMPs. So people always think prerequisite programs, GMPs, separate from HACCP. But when you look at the original text, it was never to do with that. Uh, You know, Codex has this 12 steps to HACCP, you know, 12 principles, we call them. And they put seven steps in for the HACCP program specifically. But what happened uh, somewhere along the line, people separated the two out. And so when you say, how does it relate? Well, I think Harp C is a good example where they've tried mm-hmm. to, say, go back to this sort of uh, retro uh, way of implementing food safety, which basically is, yeah, you put your GMPs there. If you've got critical control points, yep, 
you can put those on. Sometimes you don't need them. You know, then you come into a HACCP principle-based system because not all processes have critical control points. You know, fresh produce, for example. You know, people say, oh, we've got a HACCP plan. Yeah, where's your critical control point? Yeah, they can't answer you. But anyway, to the point. Um, So basically, that's what it's to do with. And because people treat them separately, they find it very hard to do risk analysis. You know, they all. I remember back... um, about 12, I would say 15 years ago, they bought in this sort of generic HACCP plan, you know, to try and give people an idea about how to do a HACCP analysis and things like that. But what people were doing is not putting their system in. They were trying to copy saying, oh, yeah, this is a form I need to write. This will be the HACCP. They don't think about it at all. And so the generic HACCP plans just went away. You know, I, don't, I think you can find them archived. But what the uh, toolboxes especially is related, saying, well, this GMP, you know, be it, as you say, extruding, thermal processing of feed, you know, this corresponds to this HACCP step here. And so you can monitor it. And this is a documentation you need. Mm-hmm. This is what you've got to think about. It's not complicated. You know, it was done 30-odd years ago when mm-hmm. we did half new, half a thing. But the trouble is the GFSI, you know, certification scheme, SQF and uh, 22,000, they try to make it complicated unduly. And you look at them and say, well, it's not that complicated, really. And I think that's the trouble. People think it is, but it's not. And uh, that's where we get this interaction between the two. Now, obviously, with Codex, they did the, I call it the bare minimum, the basics, because you don't want to make a a thousand page document like the Food Safety Code of FDA, because no one's going to read it. So they made it very compact. So there are sort of regulatory requirements on top of that, which, you know, HARPC and places like that bring. But certainly this gives you that foundation and justification <laughs> saying, look, it's not difficult. You can do it by yourself. And even if you get to the point where you get a limit saying, yes, I need outside consultation, what to has in the toolbox, it was say, learn by asking, which basically means that you get much more context if you develop questions rather than just be given a fact. So previous food safety training has always been fact-based, saying you will heat up to 85 degrees seats and you will have a moisture content of this. But what the good thing about learn by asking is, is and I do this in my courses actually, uh, mm-hmm. well, I did in the pandemic, where you don't obviously with traditional exams you test knowledge multiple choice question short answer but during the famous pandemic uh, we i changed it saying well what the students have to do is actually write exam questions what would you be asked and it's quite amazing the feedback you get saying it's no much more difficult to do and you get you have to know the material inside out to make those questions mm-hmm. and so to your point is that this enables you to ask those pertinent questions to be it a competent authority, be it a sort of auditor or consultant. And mm-hmm. so it, it, it interacts with that. So FISMA, I think, well, I've got to be careful here as well. With FISMA, the US went on their own. You know, all the rest of Canada kind of came along to a certain degree. But when they started going down the Harp Sea route, you know, basically mixing everything up you know not prerequisite now and it's not hassle i think we said i said well you know i don't think we should go down that route too much and the problem is is that the europeans are doing their own thing as well you know they're doing hassle based so it can relate to fisma 
But at the end of the day, you know, the real, and I think the U.S. are coming to this uh, realization is that, yeah, we all have to work on the same global standard. You know, we can demand things from people exporting to the U.S., for sure, to meet a standard. But don't make it so confusing that I don't even know what that standard is. And this is where the Codex comes in and tries to make this sort of equal, not equal playing field, because obviously the big countries and the big companies will always have more resources. But at least it gives them a chance to say, yeah, I can get up to this point and I can help national, local and yeah, it might be able to get into the export business as well. So mm-hmm. that's the way the, the toolbox helps and how it interrelates to FISMA. And that's, that's another uh, thing that I was going to ask you, uh, particularly with what you mentioned in, um, you know, towards the end, uh, is that, you know, like sometimes there are going to be companies that uh, they have a business in a country and then they have a set of regulations, right, for that country and then they they, if they want to export to another country then they also need to know like what are the rules and the regulations that uh of the country where they are importing to so very very important but yeah um with FISMA you know I'm uh, one of the lead instructors at the beginning it was very complicated I can tell you uh the language is is a a bit complicated but um you know like uh, I'm we we did some trainings here in Auburn uh, for PCQI, and then uh, I know like NC State does some trainings, probably Kansas State and the American Feed Industry Association. They also do, I think, at least one or two trainings in Nashville. And the nice thing about uh, those trainings is like um, they can get the regulation and then just give you examples and just translate all the information uh, in the regulation to the uh, daily activities in uh, in the feed mill, so it helps out, you know, to to understand and follow the regulations. But if you just sit down and read, it can be it can be complicated. It can be complicated. Yeah. Oh no, and that's the problem. Yeah. You know, what we've got to a situation of is that we're trying to second guess each other. So obviously, with FISMA, as you rightly said, when it first introduced, I don't think. The regulators even understood it, to be honest. And I'm not bashing on the mm-hmm. US. In in Canada, we had the Safe Food for Canadians Act. And you ask an inspector about it. They say, well, we think it's this, we think it's that. And this is a problem. What you had is, especially in FISMA cases, lit- well, politicians really making up the rules. And that differs from Codex, where Codex mm-hmm. brings all these experts from all over the globe to do it. So it's science-based, so it's easy to do. Now, as you rightly said, when you get things descriptive, and they're descriptive for a reason, because if you make prescriptive like the meat regulation, your USDA, that's easy because it's meat. It's uh, it's one product. You go outside mm-hmm. meat, you've got all these different products. So FDA were kind of in this sort of mix, you know, saying – well, how can we do this? But we can't have the whole industry because there's too many products. And I think the other disadvantage with FISMA is that it was actually based on, obviously, the 9-11 attacks because they were really concerned about bioterrorism. So that was a a kind of headache as well to try and incorporate into uh, regulation. But you get to the point where, as you rightly said, you as an academic have to interpret the regulation you think it's all right. You tell the uh, custody client, and then you get a inspector who's 
obviously being told as well, saying, well, this is my interpretation, go with this. And you got this point where literally people weren't, it was almost like doing a class where nobody understood it and sending people out and say, well, look, you've done your training, you've done an hour, what more do you want? And and I remember in the early days, as you probably know as well, early days of FISMA, even now, the number of sort of confusions. Um, I know in Canada, for example, when the Safe Food for Canadians Act was introduced, the uh, CFI inspectors got a bit hot-headed and closed three places down for having the wrong paperwork. So, so mm-hmm. you know, basically was this sort of... Um, yeah, this sort of confusion. And I think with the toolbox, what it does is bring it back to, I call it bring it back to basics. So if you re, if you go to the toolbox and you look at the relevant part, you know, be it uh, hygienic practice or be it establishing maintenance or pest control, you can, you can see it. And then uh, you say, oh, yeah, that's what it means. So let's go back to FISMA. And you'll, and you'll see in FISMA, it's got strands of that sort of regulation. Mm-hmm. And so it helps you to comply with it. And I think there's a a big thing, literally the biggest thing in my mind about the toolbox is that it's the original document. You know, it's not like Chinese whispers where you say, well, I got this from this document and maybe I got another bit from that part. Mm-hmm. I got a bit from the food code. You Everything... At, at the end of the day, distills down into this sort of uh, good hygienic practice and the standards that were made by Codex with those on top. So t- that's why I think it benefits is that, yeah, guess, let's get rid of all the confusion, all the kind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people would suggest maybe that having this complexity aids things because if it's complex, it must be good. But, you know, I can tell you uh, from my experience, and this is experience over in Europe and experience here in Canada and in the US with uh, the Oaks, I won't say the company name, obviously. Um, yeah, it got so complex. You're saying, are you actually enforcing this? Are you actually doing what you say you're doing? And if you were, well, you wouldn't be having a big recall of Oaks at the moment. So that's what it tries to do. But so, yeah, interpretation is the key. And the thing is, is that as academics like uh, we are, is that yeah? You're you're kind of educated guesses because you've got some experience in that, mm-hmm. but you don't want to get into guesses. You want to say this is what the material is and this is what it, it's all about. It's time for our famous three. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the animal nutrition team at eastman.com. Yeah, well, you know, I think this has been like a really, really interesting uh, conversation and uh, Towards the towards the end of the podcast, uh, I'm not gonna ask you know like the the three questions. Uh, I know like uh, we got a lot of uh, students that are listen to this podcast, and uh, I always like to to uh, pick the uh, the brain of the guests and uh, maybe some advice that you can provide for uh, graduate students um, and how they can get prepared to have a successful career once they leave the university? Well, I was prepared for those three magic questions, you know, about <laughs> what's your pastime, what's the book, and what's this. <laughs> anyway, but you are right. A much more important one is to give advice. And, 
you know, as you get older and you look back, obviously you're in a position saying, I know what it's like to be a graduate student. I know what it's like to be a student who is uncertain about the future because you look, um, because academia is good. You know, academia is like this staircase, isn't it? You kind of, yeah, do your degree, then do your PhD, MSc, PhD maybe. Uh, It's all mapped out for you. Um, I think what people tend to miss, though, is the importance of the actual PhD itself, Uh, even a master's. You know, um, because I remember, you know, myself when I was doing my degree, I wasn't even sure if I was going to be a food microbiologist. We did a bit of food micro. We did chemistry as well and all these different Mm -hmm. things. And it's so easy to get entwined, not entrapped, but a consideration is that those subjects you find easy, you tend to migrate to. Uh, So I, for example, went to microbiology because I had really good instructors, professors in microbiology. Um, And that's a shame because, like I say, if you had a bad instructor and they run an interesting area like bioinformatics you think oh god if only i went to that so you just got to be cautious of that yes certainly go with the one you're really interested in well taught but you've got to try and think about where your career is going to go after that you know there's no point in doing a microbiology msc if you're really interested in chemistry really interested in physics really interested in nutrition Uh, but it's not critical but where it does start becoming critical is when you go for a PhD. And for a PhD, you want to get into an area that's got a future. I remember back in the 80s when I did, not well, not 80s. Oh, it was 80s, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> in the 80s when I was doing the it makes you feel so old. Uh, when you're doing your PhD, I went to microbial physiology. And that was just about the time people were going to genetic engineering. And, you know, if I had my time again, I would have thought, yeah. I should have done this. You know, I should have gone into more of the molecular bioinformatics. And I remember my professor, you know, he was FRS, which is fellow of the Royal Society. And essentially, he had no time. I literally met him three times a year. And one of those was at Christmas to exchange Christmas cards. (laughs) But that's another aspect of it. If you are going to do even an MSc to a degree uh, and a PhD, Look at the inst- who's going to be your supervisor. Have they got a good track record? It might sound pedantic, but these are and, and I suppose when you're doing an MSc and PhD, you're just grabbing for a branch. You say, "Oh well, you know, I've got someone to accept me," mm-hmm. which is more normally the case. But if you can have a, a choice, then certainly go that route and get experience. And a bit like you were talking about, get experience. You know, um, the reality is academia is this nice sort of umbrella i call it a microtome uh, whereas industry it's the the stark reality of life so anytime you get industrial experience and you know it's you're not going to go in there and become a production manager in a feed mill but there again you can go and work in a feed mill you could even work in places you know cafes restaurants that sort of realistic working environment because academia is like this sort of woolly land uh, it can get a bit what's the word, uh, playground-ish when you get faculty who want to cause more trouble. But I'll go that. I'll keep to the question. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, be sure of what you're doing. But at the end of the day, when it, what the person you are when you're in your teens and in your 20s is a very different person that's going to be 10 years down the line. You know, we, we think we know what jobs are like. Like, mm-hmm. I must admit, I've always been – I was going to be an academic right from the get-go. Once I've left uh, chef school and I started the degree you know I remember telling 
my mentor, if uh, there were mentors those back then, I want to be a professor. He thought it was crazy. Uh, well, he probably he was right. But <laughs> the point was, I knew where I was going to go. And, uh, and nothing kind of shifted that sort of viewpoint. But a lot of people don't know what they want to do. And the important thing, I think, is just go with your instinct. You know, don't do what I do. You know, go with my best friend. Say, well, best friend's doing this, so I'll keep with them. <laughs> don't do mm-hmm. that. But don't, you can't make too many big mistakes. That's the point. Because you could start a job at a feed mill and you say, well, you know, I, I prefer nutrition. It's very easy to swap. You know, when you're young, you know, the time of years seem very valuable, which they are. But as you get older, you think, well, three years doing a course, what was a, you know, what's a big deal? <laughs> and it comes with age. So don't be worried about choosing something. Um, and always say to yourself, when I make this decision, I did it with all the facts at the time. You know, I could look back and say, oh, you know, I shouldn't have gone there. I should, why did I go to Manchester to work in a hospital? You know, all these mm-hmm. kind of things. But I always say the enriched shits, you know, um, life is a kind of meandering road and you shouldn't be worried about jumping and making mistakes and you know you go to a place and it might not suit you might be fired within a week you know at least you tried Mm -hmm. it so i think to get to your question again (laughs) is yeah try to have an idea a bit of a consciousness when you're choosing a path and you know you don't know what you're going to be good at uh, later on but uh, whatever you do you've got to try and give it a 100%. 100%. You know, don't go in half-hearted because you get half-hearted results. Yeah. You know, if you go into a PhD, it is a tough. It's the toughest degree you'll do. It's not tough in terms of knowledge. It's kind of you're on your own, mainly, most of the time. You're self-sufficient, and you've got to do this sort of research. You've got to find something. You've got to put the hours in and the writing and all this. And But it's worth it in the end. But if you did that half-heartedly, no chance. You'll find it <laughs> arduous. Um and, you know, it's different worlds in academia and that. And some people like academia. You know, I think we do because it gives us mm-hmm. flexibility. You know, stress up to here. But anyway, it's what it is. Mm-hmm. With industry, people like the security of it to a degree. Um, but, yeah, whatever you choose, just be conscious of where you're jumping. But don't worry about making mistakes. And that's the key thing. Mm-hmm. I think uh, young people these days, they are, they've got so much information barging them and uh, advice. And... Yeah, it's your instincts at the end of the day will tell you, say, yeah, this is the way to go. And I think if you trust your instincts, um, don't worry about making mistakes. I think you'll go far. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Keith. Uh, This was a really good discussion, and uh, I'm sure that the audience is going to enjoy this this episode. Um, Thank you so much, and uh, hopefully, you know, I I can uh, in the future meet you personally. Oh, yes. Well, hopefully, I'll get down to Alabama, so we should be good from the snow at least. Now, thanks for having me. Thank you. Have a nice day. And you. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at the help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. 
Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.